Hello, everyone, and welcome back to COVID in the Classroom, a podcast dedicated to getting kids back to school, putting parents in positions of power, and navigating the new world of education in the time of coronavirus. I'm your host, Mary Claire Amsalom. So welcome to COVID Lockdowns 2, Return of the Lockdowns, the worst sequel in American history. Uh, Today we'll be discussing everything that's going on with the second wave of Orwellian lockdowns, and I'll be joined by a fabulous education policy expert, Inez Stepman. We're going to talk about her reaction to the second wave of lockdowns, uh, what role the teachers unions are playing all of this, and and what the end game is here. You know, this podcast is really uh, geared towards helping parents navigate this new world, uh, helping, you know, just everyday Americans say, you know, what the heck are we supposed to expect from our education system after all this is one day over. We all thought it would be over by now. I tweeted the other day that I had a baby on day four of 15 days to slow the spread. Remember 15 days to slow the spread? And my baby is crawling now. He's saying mama and dada. He's, you know, he's practically a toddler. And so this has been going on for quite a long time. And at what point are we going to say, you know, let's actually follow the science. Everyone's saying follow the science, let's maybe do it. So let's jump into today's headlines, which gets into this exact issue. The Wall Street Journal reports as COVID-19 cases surge, school districts ponder closing their doors. School districts nationwide are wrestling with difficult decisions over whether to close in light of a recent surge in COVID-19 cases, as community infection rates change quickly in some spots but remain relatively stable in others. Cities such as Detroit, Boston, and Baltimore have shut down or scaled back in-person learning because of increases in coronavirus cases. Other large school systems, including Chicago and Philadelphia, that didn't reopen schools during the fall term are deciding to keep students at home longer. On Friday, the mayor of New York City, home to the nation's largest school district, warned parents that schools could be closed as soon as Monday if coronavirus cases continue to rise. Meanwhile, in Oregon, Texas, and elsewhere, are keeping schools open despite increased infections. Now, this article uh, is from last week, and so, of course, we know that since then, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio has announced that New York City public schools uh, will close. The New York Times reports New York City's entire public school system will shut on Thursday, signaling that a second wave of coronavirus has arrived as the city is struggling to revive from its devastating spring when it was the global epicenter of the pandemic. The shutdown was prompted by the city's reaching a 3% test positivity rate over a seven-day rolling average, the most conservative threshold of any big school district in the country. Schools in the nation's largest system, with 1.1 million students and 18,000 schools, have been open for in-person instruction for just under eight weeks. And I want to say that point again. We're talking about 1.1 million students that are affected just in this one city. I mean, these are families whose lives have been completely turned upside down, and we're seeing that school openings aren't being prioritized the way other industries have. Uh, The airline industry has never shut down. There was never a point where you couldn't get on any local flight. I don't think so. I could be wrong on that. But I don't think there was ever a point where you couldn't get on a plane to take a a domestic flight in the United States. Now, we reported on the last podcast that it's virtually impossible to get coronavirus on a plane given the new filters that they're putting on there. But I saw a tweet the other day that says, can't we just hold school in restaurants? And yeah, I thought the same thing. Can't we just hold school on planes? And it it really underscores this fact that we have other places open. Why is it that we are finding such difficulty in reopening our schools? 
And to that point, um, uh, last night there was a coronavirus task force uh, briefing uh, to update us on where the administration stands on this. So Mike Pence says that more lockdowns are not the answer to stopping coronavirus. Coronavirus lockdowns will not be happening while the Trump administration is still in the White House, says Vice President Mike Pence. In a briefing on Thursday, Pence said the White House in no way supports locking down and shutting down the economy in order to stop the spread of the virus. This administration and our president do not support another national lockdown, and we do not support closing schools, Pence said. Actually, the CDC never recommended closing schools at any point this year. The CDC has never recommended closing schools at any point this year. The CDC has made a lot of recommendations. They've gone back on a lot of those recommendations. Remember when they said that uh, they basically made fun of you for wearing a mask, saying this isn't going to do anything, and then now if you don't wear a mask, you're you know a grandma killer. The CDC has said a lot of things, but they've never said shut down schools because the science simply doesn't support it. And speaking of science, our next story is speaking to exactly the data on school reopenings. According to Politico, UNICEF says schools are not main drivers of COVID among kids. Data from 191 countries shows no consistent link between reopening schools and increased rates of coronavirus infection, UNICEF reports in an analysis on Thursday. In releasing its first comprehensive assessment of the pandemic's effects on children, the United Nations agency said there's strong evidence that with basic safety measures in place, the net benefits of keeping schools open outweigh the costs of closing them. Schools are not the main driver of community transmission, and children are more likely to get the virus outside of a school setting, UNICEF said. And here are the numbers. As of November, 572 million students, about 33% of all students, are being affected by 30 nationwide school closures, the report found. At their peak, school closures affected almost 90% of students around the world. Kids accounted for just one in nine reported COVID-19 infections worldwide. While children can get sick and can spread the disease, this is just the top of the pandemic iceberg, said Henrietta Force, UNICEF executive director. Disruptions to key services and soaring poverty rates pose the biggest threat to children. The longer the crisis persists, the deeper its impact on children's education, health, nutrition, and well-being. The future of an entire generation is at risk. I want to highlight something that that got lost in all of that. It says that students are more likely to get coronavirus outside of school than in school. I mean, that's a huge finding. This is the United Nations. Why isn't this the headline of every news station in the country? I guess there's a lot of other things going on right now. I get it. But someone should be talking about this. The science doesn't back up large-scale school closures. That's not to say that if there's an outbreak in your school, maybe shut it down. That happens every year with the flu. If there's a flu outbreak, you know, you, you close school for a couple days. Make sure the kids aren't getting sick. Leave that to, to the localities. But these widespread school closures are not backed up by science. And this recent study from 191 countries shows no consistent link between reopening schools and increased coronavirus infections. I am so pleased to be joined today by education policy expert Inez Stepman, who is a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum, as well as a contributor to The Federalist. Inez, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. 
So we are seeing a whole new wave of school closures. We are seeing parents so frustrated with the fact that they have been, you know, sitting on the edge of their seats, waiting for their kids to get off Zoom, get back in the classroom. And now they're facing, you know, the dark winter, as the Democrats put it, uh, with a whole new wave of school closures. You know, what's your reaction to, to schools shutting their doors to the teachers union saying, you know, we're not going back into the classroom and parents increasingly frustrated with their lack of options? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a continuation of the dynamic that we've seen all fall uh, and to a lesser extent last spring. I I think a lot of parents were willing to give schools a pass um, initially in the initial months of the pandemic uh, for their response. Everyone was scrambling. I think um, parents and families have been more than patient uh, with the school system. Uh, But we're seeing a continuation of that dynamic where uh, it really seems to be explicitly political and there's no good faith negotiation about whatever safety protocols can be taken. And there's no good faith negotiation on the part of teachers unions and districts on the effects, the negative effects that continued distance learning is having for so many families. So I think we're just seeing a continuation of that dynamic play out. But I I think the um, it'll only get worse. Uh, The relationships between families and the districts will only get worse when you have uh, unions like the uh, the teachers union in Fairfax County announcing that that they are going to be pushing for schools there to remain closed through August of 2021. you know, we know we have a vaccine coming in, in um, you know, at the latest, you know, uh, March, April, May. And, and I, um, over at IWF months ago, have already advocated that uh, along with healthcare workers and, and the, the most vulnerable teachers should be at the front of the line in terms of getting, getting this vaccine because reopening schools is so important for families and for our society. Uh, but now we have teachers unions saying that, you know, long past a vaccine, we're going to keep um, schools out of uh, essentially only distance learning only. And and that's just not acceptable to most families. Yeah. And I'm so happy that you said it seems explicitly political because I don't, I don't want to say that. I, I've tried avoiding saying that on this podcast as much as possible because you want to think that everyone is, as you put it, you know, ha- engaging in good faith negotiations. But when you have studies that come out, that say that schools have not been these super spreaders that they were anticipated being, that kids are, you know, relatively safe from this virus. We have known that throughout this entire pandemic. So we're, we're hearing follow the science, you know, let's listen to the experts, follow the science. The experts are saying, keep the schools open. Um, Mike Pence uh, went on television yesterday and said that the CDC has never recommended closing schools and that, you know, their administration, as long as they're in office, does not support keeping the schools closed. And so you have to think, okay, where's all this push coming from? And it seems to be uh, solely from the teachers unions. How are they getting away with this? How are they getting away with saying that this is based in science when we know that that's not true? I mean, they're obviously getting away with a lot of things because parents don't have access to school choice and and access to the finances that would give them the power to actually say no. Um, But but to return to this good faith idea for a moment, um, if if this was a good faith negotiation about how uh, to adapt to the the risks of this virus, I, I think we would see things like schools opening for emergency sessions outside during the summer, right? Um, we would see all kinds of adaptations being made with, with um, you know, the priority being getting kids back in in-person classes in a relatively safe way, right? Uh, and, and we see generally that our society has made decisions about what is and what isn't essential, right? We have in D.C., um, 
even today, I think it'll probably close down soon, but even today we have indoor dining um, with restaurants. We have liquor stores open, right? And I, I, I'm, I'm happy the liquor stores have been open throughout the past. <laughs> don't get me wrong, but, but um, you know, as a society, we really have to take a, a long, hard look at what we're prioritizing, what we are deprioritizing, it seems to me, are the needs of kids and students and of working families who can't afford to be, as uh, um, Mary Catherine Ham put it, Zoom butlers uh, for, for their kids kids 24 seven. Um, so I, I really think this is, has been very revealing about our priorities as a society, essentially playgrounds for adults have stayed open, but, uh, schools for ch- children have not. And I, I will be keeping that in mind. I know a lot of other people will be keeping that dynamic in mind. Um, the next time we hear that it's quote for the kids that we have to, you know, pour another hundred billion dollars, um, into the education system. It seems pretty clear to me that teachers unions are not prioritizing children during this entire um, entire pandemic. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I hope the American people remember when this is all over, which governors decided to become dictators when the opportunity presented itself and which didn't, um, you know, looking towards, you know, the Gavin Newsom's of the world. But, um, you know, parents are looking towards, you know, some ray of light. And it was floated, I think, last week that um, a potential Biden administration would look, you know, the, the conversation came up of who would be Ed Secretary under a potential Biden administration. And the name Randy Wein garden was thrown around uh, the name, uh, you know, I think what what was said specifically was, you know, the head of a teacher's union. And I think the assumption there would be Randy Weingarten. Um, For listeners who might not know, um, who is she? uh, And what would this mean for parents um, to see the head of a teacher's union uh, be the secretary of education? Sure. She, she's the head of one of the two largest teachers unions uh, in in the country. She's extremely hostile uh, to any kind of, of policy that might give parents options, be that be uh, charter schools or um, private school choice programs. She's even been hostile to uh, the, the, the way that parents have created pandemic pods to try to get their children some kind of um, actual educational experience when distance learning has not been working for them. She's extremely hostile to all of those things. Fortunately, I don't think there's a great chance she gets through the Senate. I mean, depending on what happens in Georgia. Um, and and furthermore, that this is why, first of all, the Department of Education um, is way more useless than than a lot of people think. And I think that frustrated the right while, when we had, you know, Betsy DeVos as, as um, and still continue to have, but uh, while we have had Betsy DeVos as education secretary, I think there's been a lot of frustration on the right. Why isn't she doing anything, right? Why isn't she doing anything about the school? The reality is the vast majority of the money and the decision-making about the education system is still at the state level. Um, and, and that's a good thing, right? That's a, that should be a relief to us uh, considering the specter of a, a Randy Weingarten, as Secretary of Education, it should be a relief to us. And actually, I think a lot of the action in terms of of the the policy that actually really matters with regard both to school reopening and and closures and with regard to school choice is going to happen in the state legislatures uh, this upcoming legislative session. So I think that's where, where a lot of the policies that actually affect um, families are, are are going to be made, and that's not to say that there won't be negative consequences from having Randy Garden as Secretary of Education. But her her ability to wreak havoc on the education system is is limited by the very nature of the fact that our education system, as as I know you and I are both grateful for, is still very much state based and and local based. 
Yeah, no, definitely. That, that is a, a, a ray of sunshine there. Um, so what my, my next question is, what is the end game here? So I, I started this podcast to try and give parents a, a resource for, you know, what to do when they have limited options during uh, when their, their schools are, are closed down or they don't have school choice options available to them. But also... I wanted to start this podcast to talk to parents about what they should expect from the public education system going forward. And it seems to me, and you actually hinted at this earlier, that the, the trust between the public school system and families seems to be irreparably shattered um, due to all these lockdowns, due to not following the science, things like that. So am I right on that? And if so, what changes do you see coming from this down the line? So um, I, I think you're right. I think this has done irreparable damage to, uh, for a lot of families, this is the first time they've really seen the way that teachers unions operate in their own interest. Um, you know, you and I have been doing education policy for a long time. And people who have worked in state legislatures have, have had a front row seat to that for decades. Uh, but I think for a lot of families, this is the first time they've really seen what the public education system is. It's a system that supports jobs for adults. It is not a system um, where the first priority is the education of the children. And I think that was a, a, a big slap in the face moment for a lot of Americans. Um, I, I also think it's it's a huge opportunity for those of us who who are have been, uh, you know, sort of uh, criticizing the education system for a long time on a variety of of, of um, you know, topics, right, and a variety of, of critiques of the system from the fact that parents have very little input in the system and very little power because they don't have school choice to the, the, what the system is actually teaching, right, with regard, for example, to American citizenship uh, or, or not teaching with regard to civics where we have now a second generation, Gen Z, graduating our public school system knowing virtually nothing about the country that they live in other than it's, it's unjust and evil. Um, so I think for those of us who have seen the problems with the public education system for quite some time, this is an important moment to try to connect the kind of solutions like school choice, like educational freedom, um, that we have been, you know, championing for years to connect those solutions to the problems that families are experiencing now. And, and the words that I like to use with regard to this, that I think we don't use enough in the school choice debate are uh, control and leverage. Those are the two things I think families need the most. Not every family is going to want to leave the public school system, but almost every family can benefit from having more leverage, from having their voice matter more when they sit down, um, you know, in a PTA meeting or they sit down with uh, a principal or an administrator, right? Um, every, every family can benefit from having that kind of control and leverage in their conversations um, with the school district. So I, I think that's an underappreciated benefit of school choice, even for families who, who are, let's say, generally happy with their, uh, their public school, perhaps they either are upset about the school closures or um, there may be they don't like what the the history curriculum is or the sex ed curriculum is or, or, you know, they don't like some particular aspect that just really isn't working for their kid. Or, for example, their kid is being bullied um, and that's being ignored by the administration. Every one of those issues um, is, is better addressed when that family and those parents have leverage um, where their voice actually matters. Because what we're seeing um, in all of these debates across the country is that, you know, school districts are are perfectly willing to listen to unions and not to the voices of families because families at the end of the day, you know, they're not they're not signing the checks. Right. 
Um, and and that's that's the important leverage that school choice gives. It's it's, it's the connection between how happy a family actually is with the education that's being delivered to their child and the fact that the system gets paid. Because without that, that uh, connecting those two things, I just think we're not going to get very form in the reform battle on any front. I think that's such a great point. And if, if we need any more evidence that there is a lack of leverage in the public school system, look at what's going on right now. The public schools are fighting to stay closed while the private schools are fighting to stay open. I mean, there you go. I mean, the private schools have all of the incentives lined up to what the needs of kids and families are, and the public schools just don't. And I think you said it perfectly when you said that they're perfectly willing to, to appease the teachers unions and listen to those demands, but not necessarily those of families. We need a total realignment of incentives. And that won't happen until we have um, widespread school choice. Um, to wrap up here, I do want to, I think it, I would be remiss if we didn't turn quickly to higher education, because um, I think you and I are actually both like totally in lockstep when it comes to this issue. But um, Chuck Schumer uh, mentioned last week, I think it was, that um, a potential Biden administration would consider forgiving uh, about $50,000 of student loan debt via executive orders. That just adds a, a totally different layer to, to the, the mechanism through which they would implement this. But um, what are your thoughts on this? Um, and explain to our listeners why forgiving student loan debt would not solve the core problems plaguing higher education and how we got into this huge mess in the first place. Well, let, let's start with something that I think is too often ignored um, on, on the right in terms of how we hear you know, Republican politicians or conservatives talking about this issue. Student debt is an enormous crisis. And it is a burden on millions of Americans. Uh, and it's a very different thing. You know, it's, it's sort of an OK Boomer thing, right? Like the idea that it's, it would be possible to, to work your way through the typical four-year college with, like, say, a summer job or a job in the evenings, that those days are gone. And the reason those days are gone is because we don't actually have, we have a student debt problem, but that's just a symptom. The underlying problem is a college cost problem. So the cost of university has skyrocketed well above inflation now for, for multiple decades, um, actually higher than any other commodity, including healthcare, right? We have this, this ongoing national debate for decades over the, the cost of healthcare, uh, but, but university tuition has risen even further above inflation than healthcare costs, actually by a factor of two, right? So um, we have an enormous cost problem. And unless we solve that cost problem, any kind of debt forgiveness, um, it's just a Band-Aid and it won't stop the underlying problem, which will continue and mount. And, and um, you know, what we're going to do with student loan forgiveness is just to get, forgive essentially one one lucky batch of people on the back end without solving the problem, shifting that problem and making it worse for future generations and for people who did not go and get a four-year degree. And of course, it's it's morally completely unfair to, to those people who paid off their loans and sacrificed a great deal to do so. Um, so there are all kinds of problems with it itself. But the biggest problem to me is that it just doesn't solve the problem. And, and the, the first, to me, the first rule of when you're in a hole is you stop digging, right? Um, and, and that's really what we need to do with regard to university cost. There is, at this point, the Bennett hypothesis is not a hypothesis. That would be the, the um, argument first advanced by uh, Ronald Reagan's education secretary, Bill Bennett, who said that 
perhaps having free and easy loan money backed by the federal government for student loans was actually creating a, a upward pressure on cost. Well, that's not a hypothesis anymore. It's a fact. So the, the Federal Reserve um, of New York found that for every additional dollar of federal money a university takes in loans, it raises tuition prices 60 cents. So This is a primary problem of what is pushing the cost of college upward year after year. And I think at minimum, we need to freeze these loans and then we need to start drawing them down, making less money um, available through the federal market um, to to borrowers and push putting more of that borrowing, frankly, back into the private sector where. You know, if, if you go and sit down for a loan with Wells Fargo, Bank of America, whatever, um, they're going to look at your ability to pay it back. You're you're, you're an 18 year old. You want to go to a 200, uh, you know, or, or 2050th ranked college, um, of which there are many in the United States, uh, and you and you want to study um, critical whiteness studies or something like that. Uh, you sit down in Wells Fargo and you ask them for a hundred and twenty thousand dollar loan to do that. They're going to look at their bottom line and look at the possibility that you're not going to be able to pay off that loan, um, and and they're going to deny you the loan. The federal government doesn't do that, right? Every high school graduate, every 18-year-old high school graduate is a walking blank check, which has really encouraged predatory behavior on the part of universities because they get paid first, right? It's, It's the student that gets stuck with debt for the rest of their life. The universities get their money up front straight from the government. So um, it really has encouraged a predatory environment and it's, it's skyrocketed costs. And those are the problems we need to look at rather than looking at a Band-Aid on, on the back end to try to forgive some of this massive student loan debt. Absolutely. And I am at least encouraged by, I mean, you and I like live and breathe this stuff, but you know, when I'm just talking to, you know, average people, average Americans, and you know, they're, we're complaining about the cost of college. They just go, Oh, because we have a federally subsidized student loan market. And it's like, no, yeah. I think people just understand that these, these subsidies have distorted prices and sent tuition skyrocketing. Cause why would a university have any incentive to keep their costs low? If every high school graduate is, as you said, walking around with a blank check. I've done a lot of talking about this topic uh, during the past week uh, because, you know, it has been uh, brought into into the spotlight. And one thing that I do want conservatives to, that I think they should sure up their talking points on is that uh, I'm seeing some conservatives sort of open their open their minds to the idea of student loan forgiveness because there is this this other factor here where conservatives are really mad at the universities. We're really mad at them becoming these activist factories, these pushing this, this you know, woke theory on all of their students and then graduating them with mountains of debt um, with no marketable skills. And that's something that everyone should be really upset about, especially since we're subsidizing it the way that we are. But what I want conservatives to be pretty consistent on, and it's something that you, you know, just mentioned, that the universities get paid up front. They are completely fine whether or not you're paying off your student loans or not. Um, and so saying we should forgive student loan debt and we're not going to pay our student loans anymore, that doesn't stick it to the universities. The only people that that sticks it to is the American taxpayers. Um, so I think that there are other ways that we can get around punishing the universities. Um, and the, the for me, at least, the number one solution to that is to dismantle the federal student loan program. Absolutely. And and that's really the lifeblood of the entire university sector. It's dependent on it for as a a business model, right? There's a reason that we have so many more universities, even per capita, than any European country. It's because it's a good racket to get into. Um, 
so and, and that's due primarily to to our policies. Um, but I, I guess I guess I, I'm in the camp. Of, I'm open to a grand bargain on this. Um, I as particularly as you say, because the taxpayer already holds the check for these student loans. So we pre pandemic. Um, there was uh, an estimate that about 40%, maybe 45% of student loans would be in default by 2023. We already know that only 55% of people are paying their loans at all. Um, and that includes programs like income-based repayment, where you're not actually attacking the principal at all. You're, you're, you're not even attacking the, the interest of your loan, right? You're paying based on, on income. Um, and, and so, Functionally, the taxpayers are paying for this, these loans, and they will regardless of whether or not we put through um, certain kinds of loan forgiveness. Of course, there are different plans, um, and some of them are, are more pernicious than others. Uh, but I, I would be open to a grand bargain on this for one reason and one reason only. We have to stop, we have to stop the money in the future. Right. If, if, if the left is willing, if Democrats are willing to cut off student loan money in the future and actually tackle this cost problem, I would be willing to accept the financial pain and the complete moral travesty that it would be to bail out uh, student uh, student borrowers, especially those um, who are, are close to default or um, are, are, are uh, of lower income brackets, right? I, I, I would see that as, as an acceptable bargain to stop this system going forward. Unfortunately, because of the way that Joe Biden is, is uh, kind of signaling that he's going to do this, and, and Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren are encouraging this, um, by the pen and the phone, there's no opportunity for a grand bargain, right? Um, there's no opportunity for Republicans to get something in exchange. And probably if they, there were to be negotiations on this, they would get something utterly stupid like NCLB for higher ed, which is basically what um, Senator Lamar Alexander was shopping around for the Higher Education Act. You know, the federal government is going to make a chart of which degrees are worth it and, and which degrees are not worth it. You know, yeah, they're, they're going to do a great job with that. Um, but I... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, theoretically, I'm open to this kind of, of negotiation because I, I think it's so important, uh, both for financial reasons and, and for college cost reasons, all the reasons that um, we've been talking about, but but also for, you know, culturally for the country, I think it's very important that we stop subsidizing the universities. And frankly, conservatives are stupid, right? Like, if, if they continue to subsidize what are essentially training camps for their ideological opponents in the country, uh, this, this is politics at its dumbest. Um, but so I, I'm open to all kinds of bargains, theoretical bargains on this score. I just don't think we're going to get that kind of bargain from the left. I think they're too smart. Um, they, they know what a, what a cultural asset the universities and the academy have been for them in the last 50 years. Um, and I don't think that they're going they're going to, uh, to to give us that deal. But if they were to give it, I, I would take it because I, I think it's so important that we we, uh, we change the fact that the federal government and the U.S. taxpayer and, you know, mechanics in Michigan are subsidizing the children of um, the upper middle class to attend Brown and learn how their country is really, really terrible. Um, that's just that 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 makes no sense to me on any level. And I'm willing to, to sacrifice a lot to uh, to change that that uh, system. Unfortunately, I just don't see 
I don't see that kind of bargain on the table, given that they, they are going to do this through the pen and the phone. And frankly, the HEA, the language, um, I, I'm not at all sure that the courts will stop this for us because the language is really vague and it does seem to grant the secretary an enormous amount of power. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree that the that stopping the money flowing into universities needs to be the number one priority. If a grand bargain gets us there, you know, hey, who would I be to, to shut down negotiations on that? I just, who knows what we'll see out of this next Congress. Um, Inez, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Thanks for joining us on COVID in the Classroom. I look forward to bringing you more essential information for parents, educators, and students during this critical time. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app to receive a new episode every other Monday. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with someone who might enjoy it. We hope to see you next time. COVID and The Classroom is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.